You're listening to The Naked Pravda. This is a relatively new show from Medusa, our first English language podcast. So please don't be shy about recommending us to your friends. And you know what? Leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're tuning in. It would be great. Welcome to The Naked Pravda, a podcast that highlights how Medusa's top reporting intersects with the wider research and expertise that exists about Russia. I'm your host, Kevin Rothrock, the managing editor of Medusa's English Language Edition. And I'm going to be honest with you. When I started arranging today's episode, I was worried that it would be boring. I talked to some friends about doing a whole show on the mechanics of Russia's presidential administration, and they looked at me like I was the dumbest idiot in the world. While the jury's still out on that last bit, I think it's safe to say that this week's bombshell developments in Russia make the subject of power politics there in the executive branch especially salient. As yucky as it sounds, it's a good week to be a Kremlinologist. Luckily for you, I've got a whole gaggle of experts in Russian politics ready to explain the Byzantine world of whatever the heck the Kremlin is. But before I go any further, I should probably pause to clear up why I'm so damned excited to talk about Russia's presidential administration. Two days ago, Vladimir Putin made his annual State of the Nation speech, where he called for constitutional amendments that would redistribute power in the Russian state, possibly weakening the presidential administration, which is the focus of today's discussion on the Naked Pravda. And then his entire cabinet stepped down, and longtime Prime Minister Dmitry Medvedev was moved, some would say demoted, to a new number two spot on Russia's Security Council. It's still early days, but some of what Putin proposed includes amending the procedure for appointing government ministers, giving the parliament the right to name top officials, forcing the president to consult with the upper house of parliament when appointing the heads of state security agencies, limiting presidents to two terms, no more of this two consecutive terms business, raising residency requirements on presidential candidates, and enshrining the state council, currently just an advisory body, as a state agency. When I recorded the interviews you'll hear today, some of the guests didn't know about Putin's grand proposal for constitutional amendments. We talked before he even gave the speech. But these experts were, of course, aware that the president and his team are busy developing a plan for the Russian state after 2024, when President Putin's current term ends. While you never really need an excuse in Russia to talk about Vladimir Putin or the Kremlin, the inspiration for this episode of The Naked Pravda is Andrei Pertsev's October 2019 story about Sergei Kirienka, Putin's current first deputy chief of staff, and the supposed manager of Russia's domestic politics. But the article is more than a Kirienka profile. It offers a broader look at his office in the Kremlin and at the presidential administration itself, which I confess, I don't understand all that well, even after studying Russia for almost two decades. Like most reports about the presidential administration, Pertsev's story relies largely on anonymous sources. In other words, we're dealing with a lot of loosely attributed speculation, which ultimately fuels much of what is commonly called Kremlinology. You can love it, you can hate it, but so long as executive power in Russia remains opaque, we'll be guessing intensely about the behind the scenes in Moscow. For all its flaws, Kremlinology is a necessary evil, whether you're a columnist or an analyst, or even a government insider yourself. Well, certainly uh, it's good for some people who claim whether with or without a reason, 
to have inside information. And many people do, and many people try, and I don't want to uh, underestimate their effort. That's Maria Lippmann, an independent analyst who's contributed to and edited several volumes on Russian politics and society. She doesn't hold the science, or maybe it's an art, of Kremlinology in the highest regard. We can speak about generalities, but uh, at the end of the day, we do not know. And one reason why we don't is uh, the Kremlin takes effort to be non-transparent, to be uh, for the decision making to be opaque. And like uh, insiders are telling us, Putin very rarely explains his goals. Maria points out that even Gleb Pavlovsky, the former dissident turned former Kremlin spin doctor who supposedly engineered Russia's modern day political ideology, even he apparently says he doesn't know what's going on anymore. To begin with, I would quote Gleb Pavlovsky, uh, one of those who claims to have inside information, a person who was an insider, very close to the Kremlin, to the decision-making center, and uh, I guess to the president himself, for many years, not anymore. In an interview, I would say three years ago, maybe, he said, even I can hardly claim to understand the real mechanism of power. And if a person like Gleb Pavlovsky says this, this means that, uh, though commendable, probably the attempts to understand how decisions are made in the Kremlin are generally futile. All right, but let's backtrack a bit. This Pavlovsky guy, what's so special about his grand vision for Russia's contemporary political system? If we assume he had all the influence and insight that's often attributed to him, where does that leave us? It was basically, it was Pavlovsky's idea that we're supposed to build a state that will use our weaknesses and turn them into strength. And this is basically the definition, this is the basic definition of a hack. That's Konstantin Gaza, another independent Russian political analyst. He uses the metaphor of hacking to describe the Russian state under Vladimir Putin. What the heck does that mean? He's talking about institutional shortcuts and bending the rules of the game in politics, both at home and internationally. In the very beginning, it's true. It was a life hack. It was a hack because the state itself was supposed to be built first virtually as an idea and then as number of uh, practices, media, media instruments and so on. State as an assemblage of practices and technologies uh, was built uh, as a machine of hacking the global political order because it was no place for us in global political order 20 years ago. But but like 20 years ago, nobody, nobody could imagine that uh, these hacks would turn into ideology, would turn into something that will drive politics. No, no, not just the sources of, of strengthening the state power, but, but its inner drive. It's inner impulse. It's inner momentum. Konstantin also recognizes the challenges inherent in guessing at Putin's inner circle. I mean, we don't even know where this guy takes his meals. Because we don't know what he's doing, because we don't know what president is doing for, I don't know, for 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 third part of his uh, job time. Have you ever seen pictures of, uh, of Putin dining in sort of informal frame? Never. Only with Medvedev. Only, only with Medvedev. But there are lots of people. They are... They are inside. They uh, they speak with him, and it's uh, it's it, it is happening. Uh, it is happening from the outside to to all state mechanisms that that we know. By now, you probably get it. We're dealing with informal power, and that makes it hard to track and measure. 
One political consultant told Medusa's Andrei Pertsev, anonymously, of course, that the structure that's literally closest to Putin inevitably gets informal leverage because all the power of the country is concentrated in Russia's executive branch. And Putin's presidential administration, at least while he's still president, is the group managing his schedule and even his private dinners. I guess I like to use the term the Kremlin to refer to both Putin and the broader presidential administration apparatus. That's Brian Taylor, a political science professor in the Maxwell School at Syracuse University. He wrote a book called The Code of Putinism, all about how the mentality of Putin and his team has shaped Russian politics. So I think if we look at legislation that refers to the structure of Russian politics, the presidential administration is not singled out as a powerful political body. So in that sense, it doesn't have formal authority vested in it by the Constitution or by other laws the way the various components of the government, the ministries, the Duma, the Federation Council, and all the other actors have a more explicit place in the formal institutional structure. This is how he explains the presidential administration's power. But I think it's fair to say that it plays an essential role in the system and in some ways is more powerful than some of those other parts of uh, the state that are enumerated more specifically in law. So if we just think back to where the administration sits, they took over the buildings that were formerly occupied by the Central Committee of the Communist Party. Those are the people who are working more closely on a daily basis with the president than various government ministers and that sort of thing. So I think that's right to say that although it does not have constitutional formal power at the level of the other actors, it has this informal power that comes from being close to the president, working directly for the president, helping the president shape an agenda and try and implement that agenda in a way that is somewhat separate from the more kind of institutional work that the various ministries are doing. As Russian officials press ahead with Putin's new plan to reform the constitution and ostensibly weaken the presidency, you can expect even more talk about Russia's informal politics. One of the most familiar concepts you'll find in this discussion is the idea that Russian politics breaks down into clans. Now, the word clan is problematic, admittedly, but Brian says it's still maybe the best analytical prism we've got. First thing to say about clans is it's a way to think about Russian politics that calls attention to how much is going on informally outside the formal institutionalized structures of power. All political systems have some degree of these informal relationships shaping outcomes. I think in the Russian context, they're more predominant than they might be in a well-institutionalized, advanced democracy. One person I quote in the book on this issue is Gleb Pavlovsky, who was an important advisor to Putin for about the first 11 or so years of Putin's rule. And he says in one of his books that Putin has this dual role in the system. He's simultaneously the president of the formal system and the boss of the informal system. And I think that's a good way to think of it. This is not a literal mafia state. This is like the analogy is, is sort of conceptual. There are people who like to use the term mafia state to refer to current Russian politics. I think that is probably an inappropriate label because it conjures up all sorts of images in people's minds that 
maybe isn't helpful for thinking about how the political system works. Um, I think clan works as long as we take it with the proviso that these are not blood clans. These are informal groupings. But, but I think the important thing to remember is that these clans, they cut across the boundary between the state and the private sector, between different institutions within the state. And it all has to do with the question of whose person is this, right? To whom are they connected in the system? Who is their patron? Who helps promote their career? Whose career are they helping through these informal networks? And it's correct to say that these are not fixed entities. I think sometimes people think that once a member of a clan, always a member of a clan, and you live and die with that clan. But people working in this system understand that sometimes their allegiance has to shift as a way of advancing their own interests. Having said that, I think it is useful to think of these things as not completely fluid. There is some fixed nature to it that comes from having a long association with someone, whether you went to university with them or worked for them or with them earlier in your career. When I asked Konstantin Gaza about political power in Russia, he also used clan terminology, but he focused on the ideologies within these groups. They're supposed to have inside their camps sort of common ideological platforms. We have neoliberal ideology, we have statist ideology, and we have guys who who are mixing spirituality with statist ideology, three ideological platforms. But inside clans, no clans, very fluid coalitions, more and more like uh, like like you know like like warlords. We can uh, make a great looting together today, and. Throats to each other next day, because number of those who you who you call Silviki and number of those who you call Liberale, for example, they both depend on the financial infrastructure of Gazprom, for instance. So it's like it depends on the angle, it depends on the optics, whether we want to see whether we want to see worldviews, whether we want to interpret the the news, the current agenda or whether we want to understand how, they, how they're doing business together. Okay, but what about Vladimir Putin? How does he fit into all this? Konstantin says Putin is an arbiter above these groups, and one of Putin's biggest contributions to the system is that he's forced everybody into a kind of financial codependence. One of great Putin's inventions is that he forced them into partnership with each other. This is sort of a... This is sort of a guarantee that if something happened, at least they will have some business interests in common. And having business interests in common will protect him as, as a leader from a uh, number of very unpleasant things, like coup d'etat or, 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 or something. Thinking about Putin's role in Russia's clan system, you start to wonder what he wants from the state as a whole. You can find people who accuse him of authoritarian appetites just as easily as folks who celebrate him for rebuilding the federal government. When assessing if Putin has been a bad ruler, Maria Lippmann says it's worth considering Putin's own point of view on the matter. I think it probably makes more sense to look at uh, what Putin himself seeks, what Putin as the ultimate decision maker wants his system to be. And I think the top priority as applies to domestic situation is broad public acquiescence. 
not necessarily ardent love, but broad public acquiescence to uh, the Kremlin's policies. This acquiescence is ensured is not by keeping the public at large in fear. This is not a goal. And Putin does not seek to, you know, maybe not a very good uh, expression, to offend his people. He does not want to look offensive. One of the elements of acquiescence, well, one may be uh, sending a signal that you dare not rise against the political power of the country, but another is the government believes uh, it should deliver. This being said, of course, these are not the only priorities there are. And especially if we look early on, of course, Putin wanted his country to develop. Of course, he wanted the economy to grow. Uh, he wanted and said so on many occasions, the productivity of labor to grow. And he wanted the business climate to improve. I would say up until more or less 2012, 2014, Putin was able to balance his top priority of control within acquiescence, stability, Putin unchallenged and uncontested. And on the other hand, all these uh, wonderful things, good development, good national development um, and uh, economic growth, etc. He was able to balance the two. But beginning in 2012, and especially after 2014, this balance was tilted quite significantly so. And this is how I think we can draw a conclusion that control understood as acquiescence and stability is a primary, is the most important priority, and others can be sacrificed for the sake of that priority. Do you think that those priorities have always been in place in that specific hierarchy, or have they shifted? Because, you know, you also get this, I've, you know, I've, I've heard frequently that Putin has kind of become more conservative or more authoritarian as he's been in office, or do you think the writing was on the wall from the start? Well, I don't think there's any doubt that the sense of the power of the state, power of the Kremlin should be reinstated. The country that Putin inherited in 2000 was in a state of misery and turmoil, and Putin undertook to reinstate the power of the state and stability, and people were grateful to him for that. The way he went about reinstating stability was by actually building an authoritarian political system, political order with him at the top. Brian Taylor has a whole chapter about how Russia is misruled in his book. Here's how he says he arrived at this conclusion. The way that you have these two parallel political processes going on in the formal institutions and then the informal one, first of all, and then the extreme disbalance on the formal side, what I call hyper-presidentialism in the book, where the presidential administration and the executive branch have really come to dominate very much over countervailing sources of power, whether it's the legislative branch or the courts or the regions. So that hyper-centralization of the executive branch on the one side, along with this strong component of informal politics, I think in general leads to less effective rule over time than we might have in a system that was better balanced, better institutionalized, and that sort of thing. The reason I conclude in the book that the system is quote-unquote misruled is that if we look at Russian performance across a whole range of areas, whether it's fighting corruption or the strength of the rule of law or the effectiveness of this or that priority policy area, whether it's healthcare or building roads or you know running the Sochi Olympics or whatever it might be, 
that we find that there's just a lot of waste and inefficiency in the system. And I think it's important to note that I'm not saying that based on comparing them to some ideal model or expecting them to work as efficiently as Germany or Sweden or something like that. It's more comparing them to countries in their neighborhood that have a post-Soviet or post-communist legacy or comparing them to countries at similar levels of economic development. Even in those respects, we see that Russia often falls short of what one might expect them to be able to accomplish given those sets of comparisons. But is Russia's era of hyper-presidentialism coming to an end? It's been only two days since Putin proposed a bunch of constitutional amendments. But it does seem that the system we've come to know, the one we've been talking about on this show, is about to change somehow. Maybe in a big way. After these changes, will Putin retain as much power as he has now? Does Russia need Putin to survive, as Sergei Kirienko's predecessor, Vyacheslav Volodin, once said when he worked in the Kremlin? It's a hotly debated question. But Konstantin Gaza doesn't think Putin is so essential. It doesn't matter whether it's Putin or not. The function is essential. The function that you have huge pieces of property of of business interests and you're supposed to you're supposed to split them into pieces and you're supposed to feed all all groups in your surrounding to keep sort of a bad equilibrium bad bad balance because balance cannot be good once again they think that the world and human nature basically and and existentially corrupted and in such optics it can be Putin, it can be Medvedev, it can be someone, someone else. Look, uh, his, look at his charisma, his charisma, Putin's charisma is, 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 is 100% instrumental. He's not a charismatic leader. But in the end, huge machinery works to produce his charisma. Don't focus on him as a charismatic leader, as number of European or American analytics do. Look, look at how the machine of producing his charisma is working. If he won't blow it up in act of large-scale political suicide, it can work without him. So what about these constitutional amendments? And what's the significance of the entire ministerial cabinet resigning in the aftermath of Putin's State of the Nation speech on January 15th? Is Putin blowing up the system? It wasn't until after I recorded all these interviews that Russia's president proposed overhauling the constitution. But what about the presidential administration? And what do Putin's changes mean for the Kremlin? I had to know. So I talked to some more experts. I do think institutionally, at least the formal institutions, yes, this is the weakening of the super presidential system. That's Yana Gorokovskaya, a research scholar who studies authoritarian regimes and the evolution of civil society in post-Soviet states. But that doesn't say anything about the distribution of informal power. And that's really what we're where sort of the important part of the Russian politics lies. She says something like Putin's new constitutional program has been expected for a while. Yeah, so I think, you know, I think people have been talking about this for some time now, that it was unlikely that Putin was going to stay uh, or alter the, the constitution to, to stay in the presidency and that he was instead going to create some other role for himself. And so the, you know, the reforms to the state council, kind of the strengthening of the state council seems like that was a likely scenario going forward. But just because reforms were on their way doesn't mean it will be business as usual down the road, Yana says. She thinks the empowering of Russia's legislative branch will inject some needed vitality into the parliament 
where there are important elections coming next year. Formal institutional power matters. And so this empowering of the Duma is going to make that a more important player. And going forward, I think that's going to have implications for the 2021 Duma elections. So I think they were these elections were always going to be sort of interesting, but now they're going to be I don't know if I say like super interesting because the the members of the Duma are going to have real control over appointment of ministers, approval of ministers, you know, the makeup of the government, essentially. Sam Green, the director of the Russia Institute at King's College London and the co-author of the new book Putin versus the People, The Perilous Politics of a Divided Russia says it's too soon to know what this means for the presidential administration. Well, we really don't know. There's a lot of unanswered questions in this, uh, not just about the role of the presidency and uh, how that's now going to interact with the Duma, particularly around the prime ministership and the cabinet of ministers. But Sam says Putin's push to enshrine the state council in the constitution probably means it's about to take on a bigger role in the government. The state council doesn't have a constitutional mandate. So one of the things the constitutional reform has to do is to create uh, and clarify the mandate for that. Um, state council. If that is in fact where the locus of power and coordination is going to be, then I think we might expect that a lot of the sort of agencies and offices and practices that are currently concentrated in the presidential administration simply change ownership, right? That they would move over into whatever this new structure, this new unified system of power is going to be. So does that mean the presidential administration is on the demise? Whatever happens, Sam says the proposed constitutional reforms won't likely reinvent the nature of Russia's current political regime. And we should expect power to remain concentrated somewhere in the executive branch. And everything we know about sort of systems of power is that even when pushed to change, their core elements tend to remain the same. And it's very hard to imagine that we're moving to a a significantly less centralized, more competitive system, right? And if that's the case, then the functions that the presidential administration plays in terms of coordinating and managing competition really throughout the political and the economic system is still going to be very much in demand. It's just a question of who's the boss going to be at the top of that particular hierarchy. The presidential administration in some form or another will survive. That's Mark Galliotti, an expert in modern Russia with too many positions and accolades to list here, and whose most recent book is called We Need to Talk About Putin. He shares Sam Green's interest in the state council's future. The question is, in some ways, whether or not it transitions across to other roles, whether, for example, we actually see the White House and the prime ministerial administration becoming more important. And also, if the state council becomes a more important body, which is one of the lines of speculation as a potential landing point for Putin in 2024, then that almost certainly will also acquire its own secretariat. You know, we've come all this way, and we haven't really explained what the state council is. To be honest, I myself didn't really know. Advisory body is the phrase I've seen thrown around. I asked Mark what this means. The state council is essentially an advisory body. It is basically a bunch of the presumed great and the good who are there to to, to give the president the the benefit of their wisdom. As such, it has no real weight within the current system. Therefore, I think this is why it would have to be a very clear constitutional change to give it the kind of muscle that will be required for it to become Putin's new home. What is the difference exactly between the Security Council and the State Council? This is the interesting thing. There's a lot of discussion about the Security Council, which is, after all, a very sort of shadowy body. To some people, the Security Council is essentially the new Politburo. 
a crucial centre. For others, it's just basically a kind of a retirement home for septuagenarian Siloviki. My view is that it's actually quite a powerful institution, but it's the institution, it's not one that actually gives orders. It's the place where a whole variety of different security-related uh, head honchos get together to resolve their disputes, to be briefed on what the new policy is. The problem is this. It's very hard to distinguish between the actual power of the Security Council and the power of Patrushev, its secretary. I mean, he, in some ways, is more powerful than the Security Council, and therefore he adds his weight to it. Because before Patrushev, many of the Security Council secretaries were, were frankly lightweights and transitory. So in some ways, the Security Council is just one of these institutions where we don't really know what the institutional weight is, and we won't really see it until Patrushev goes. In terms of Medvedev joining this this uh, group, the, the Security Council, his position is going to be something new, apparently. He'll be deputy to Putin, not to Patrushev. And not so- to Patrushev. But again, you see, this is the interesting thing. I mean, Putin is, is, is chair, so absolutely, you know, he, he chairs the meetings. But in, in many ways, the meetings are, I would suggest, one of the least important elements of the Security Council's work. Yes, they are where the, you know, the, the various ministers and heads of agencies get together and they, they hear a report on you know, how the military is doing or whatever. Big deal. The real importance of the Security Council is in the Secretariat and is in all the kind of behind the scenes where the, the second, the third and the fourth in command can get together. The ad hoc study groups that are arranged to address various issues all the complex work in brokering the different stakeholders to form like the new national security document and so forth. All this kind of tedious stuff, the sort of thing that we see done within the executive office of the president in the United States or cabinet office in the UK. Now, that's not the kind of thing that if you are an honorific deputy chair, you're likely to be involved in. So unless they very much change the way the Security Council works, essentially, Medvedev has been given the job of deputy figurehead. You've been listening to The Naked Pravda, a podcast that highlights how Medusa's top reporting intersects with the wider research and expertise that exists about Russia. Today, we looked at a lot. My goodness, it was a lot. Following on a story last fall by Medusa's Andrei Pertsev about the Kremlin's supposed domestic politics mastermind, Sergei Kirienko, we dove deep into the nature of the presidential administration and talked to three experts on Russian politics, Maria Lipman, Konstantin Gaza, and Brian Taylor. Then, in the wake of Vladimir Putin's proposal for sweeping new constitutional amendments and the resignation of his entire ministerial cabinet, we got insights from another three experts, Yana Gorokhovskaya, Sam Green, and Mark Galliotti. Before we go, I'd like to emphasize what every guest told me before graciously sharing their ideas about Kremlin politics. Much of this is based on speculation and intuition. Reasonable and informed people can come to very different ideas about Russia's present and future. And it's simply too soon for answers to many of the questions that burn hottest right now. But I don't think that means it's dumb to ask or foolish to analyze and interpret. That's what I try to do here today, anyway, and I hope it's worth something to you. On future episodes of this show, we'll be discussing conspiracy theories in Russia and the state's push for so-called internet sovereignty. The Naked Pravda is a relatively new podcast from Medusa. It's our first English language show. And I hope you'll recommend us to your friends and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're tuning in to help put this program in front of more people. Thank you for listening and come back soon. Mm-hmm.